Welcome to the Legal Services Board series of podcasts on developing approaches to regulation for the use of technology in legal services. Applications of technologies, like artificial intelligence and blockchain, are increasingly enabling lawyers to provide services to their clients in new and innovative ways and have the potential to transform the market for legal services in England and Wales. In this series of podcasts, the LSB will be speaking to experts on legal services, technologies, and regulation about the challenges that new technologies present to legal services regulation and how legal services regulators in England and Wales can approach these challenges. Hello, I'm David Fowlis, a Regulatory Policy Manager at the Legal Services Board, and I'm joined today by Alison Hook of Hook Tangaza Consulting and former Director of International at the Law Society of England and Wales. We're going to discuss how legal services technology is being used and regulated in jurisdictions outside England and Wales. Well, very many thanks for joining us today. Before we get into sort of detail, it'd be useful to understand first off how lawyers in other jurisdictions are using technology to deliver legal services, the technologies they're using, the extent of their use, and how this compares to the situation in England and Wales. Well, in terms of how lawyers in other jurisdictions are using technology, I think you first of all have to remember that lawyers have slightly different functions in different jurisdictions. Um, In some, they're very much focused on the courts. In others, they have a much more transactional approach. And that, to some extent, has dictated the the take-up of technology. I think it's also fair to say that um, apart from at the the larger end of the spectrum, in terms of law firms, lawyers themselves are, are not using technology that much. So in the paper that I've prepared for you, I've been looking really at two ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, large law firms, and on the other, those who are providing technological solutions to the consumer market, the SME market. In terms of how lawyers are actually using that technology, I think we first of all have to look at law firms. And if we look at law firms, we're looking at two main categories of how they're using it. Predominantly, their interest is in how they can use technology to improve their own internal functioning. So they're using it, for example, to replace costly human resources. They're using it to mine data, particularly around things like court documentation. This is particularly true in the States where e-discovery, court analytics have become a really big business. Over here, um, the tendency has been more to focus on things like contract software, document management, document search, those sorts of analytical tools which have increasingly started to use artificial intelligence. There is also a tendency amongst the larger law firms to be very influenced by how their clients are approaching these topics. So you tend to see amongst the law firms who serve large financial sector clients that there is a greater take up than in some other parts of the of the of the spectrum of, of law firm activity. The other sort of areas where you can pockets of sophisticated use of technology are in areas like in personal injury, family law for example, or or property, where 
it's possible to get very large data sets and therefore you can begin to use technology in a more sophisticated way. Then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got law firms and more particularly new types of legal service providers who are coming in to serve clients more directly. And that's where you you, you start to see the emergence of platforms which consumers are, are able to use. And Apart from law firms, we're also beginning to see more, particularly in the States, slowly, slowly taking root here, more activity around the courts where online dispute resolution and the growth of experimentation around how you can help speed up access to justice processes around around the courts are beginning to be used elsewhere. And then, you know, there are some really interesting experiments going on around technologies like blockchain and public registries in all sorts of parts of the world, particularly around land registries and um, and, and other types of public asset registers. So overall, I would say you know, the picture is currently, if you were looking across the sector as a whole, you would say it is not a very technologically advanced sector however in pockets it is getting quite sophisticated and in pockets it's also becoming much more innovative and you can see how that could spread out given the right conditions i mean when you say that it is you're not seeing a huge amount of technology Mm. being used across the spectrum is it a question of law firms not having the ability to invest unless they're a certain size, or is it more a case of a conservative attitude amongst the legal profession? I think it, it's a variety of different issues, and they're sort of slightly different. They manifest themselves in slightly different ways in different sure. jurisdictions. So in in some jurisdictions, you have the issue that law firms are, are tend to be of a much more limited size. This is particularly true, for example, in France. You know, it's very difficult for a law firm to achieve any kind of of size that might then allow it to to begin to generate the capability and the financial resources to invest itself. You have other attitudes generally. I mean, you know, the whole way in which lawyers are trained and the whole attitude of the legal sector is innately conservative. It's not not any surprise to anyone. And so consequently, that creates a tendency to be quite conservative about embracing new technology. And you do then find that inevitably, as in any sector, there are, there are exceptions to that right. and very public exceptions to that, where you get either law firms or individuals who become real pioneers and entrepreneurs. But on average, across the sector, there is a there is a sort of a wait-and-see attitude amongst legal practitioners. There are also constraints in the way. There are constraints around codes of conduct. In many jurisdictions, because a lawyer cannot go into any kind of fee-sharing arrangement with a non-lawyer, it makes it extremely difficult for them to do the kind of things that are permitted here, which are to co-invest in a technology business. But even... In, in some jurisdictions, in many jurisdictions, in fact, to participate in the sort of lawyer finder platforms, the lawyer uh, lawyer tendering platforms, the sort of things which are very early stage ways of increasing the accessibility and the visibility of legal services to the consumer and the SME market. 
So you've got conservative attitudes, you, you have the, the codes of conduct aspect. And then thirdly, there is the, the issue of data and the ability for a market to become big enough for it actually to be viable for investment. Because investment, I think, would be there, it would come. And there, are, there is evidence of big investment in certain pockets into the legal sector. But those pockets are ones where there has been able to be either a proven business model based on a very large um, market. So, for example, you know, your legal Zoom or your Rocket Lawyer are, are platforms which have achieved a certain size and are therefore able to to raise capital. And they've been able to, to reach that size because of the particular business model that they've chosen. And because there are because they are able to tap into, say, the US market and try and go across a sort of the un, as far as possible, the, the bits of the US market where they don't actually need to touch too much into regulation. Mm. Um, because the real problem of the, of the legal market is real fragmentation, which manifests itself through different legal systems, different jurisdictions, small markets, small law firms, all of that kind of thing. And so that also then has knock-on effects in terms of data, data collection, the ability to create the data sets that you would be able to train AI on, for example. Where would you say England and Wales fits in to that on that spectrum of investment and ability to grow? Yes. I think that in terms of England and Wales... We're not in a a bad place. Um, I think that we have a lot. There is a there are there are a lot of technological work going on here in the legal sector. We're probably one of a small number of jurisdictions which are in the lead on this around the world. If you know, we look at the states, Australia. I would also give an honourable mention to Spain and to some extent more in terms of aspiration than actual achievement Mm. to Singapore. If you look at US, UK, Australia, there you've got much of what's really going on that's interesting and each one of us has got a different advantage. I think the UK and to a lesser extent, Australia, because they simply don't have the size of market that we have here. But they also have the advantage that we have of of permitting lawyers to go into partnership with non-lawyers, lawyers lawyers to fee share, lawyers to raise money, lawyers to, you know, non-lawyers to create law firms. And the boundaries are much more porous. I think that that then then sort of sets the scene for technologists to be much less worried about, you know, where they're hitting up against the boundaries. I think we do still have, uh, we do still have some boundaries here, regulatory obstacles in the way of technology, simply because it's it's not like in another sector where you don't have to think about it at all. You right. do have to think about it. And you also have to think about what's the market and there's so little information about the market Mm. compared to for example areas of financial services where you can find big data sets around you know what what's the market for mortgages or payments or foreign exchange or whatever 
So, so in terms of where we are in the UK, I think we're we're in a reasonably good position. But I think that in the US there are certain advantages. Despite the regulatory obstacles in the US, they have a number of other advantages. One is simply being close to, you know, having Silicon Valley, having that engine of innovation has been hugely important. Because if you look at the role, for example, of Stanford University and Stanford Law School in terms of stimulating the growth of some of the real game changers in the legal tech world, that gives you some idea of the role that, say, a close association between the university sector and the the law firm sector, legal sector, can really, really help to generate real innovation. And we've, we're not kind of joined up in that way here as much. I think our universities have been very slow off the mark in terms of legal tech. Um, it's beginning now, but it's it's very slow. Do you, do you think it's been almost a case of a technology in search of a legal application, rather more than, say, lawyers thinking, it'd be great if we had a piece of technology that would allow us to do this better? Yes. I think the short answer to that is yes. Because I think if you look at where many of the legal tech applications have come from, a lot of them have been technologists who've looked around for another challenge and they've said, oh, well, you know, this is similar. What I'm doing might have an application in the legal sector. I think there are there is another strand which is quite interesting in terms of innovation, which is lawyers who and they are few in number. But if you think about the founders of, for example, the founders of LegalZoom and, and Rocket Lawyer, Lawyers who were incredibly frustrated by the way things work and just decided to leave the sector and Mm. become technologists and start something. And you will equally have some interesting examples of people who were were technologists who had a problem which was kind of legal or quasi-legal, who thought there should be a solution to this, so they've gone out and created something. So you tend to find people in those two categories. Okay. So moving on to look at consumers and the consumer experience of legal technology. What's that consumer experience been so far? How is it varying in different jurisdictions and how is it different from what's happening here in England and Wales? In terms of consumers, I think that it's it's very early days because the focus, because it's where the money is, it's where the market is, it's where the, the tech is going to have most impact or, you know, they're better growth prospects for tech firms. The focus has been very much on serving the internal workings of the law firms. So aside from a few a few developments, we, we haven't seen that much really impact the consumer world of legal services yet, although there are enormous possibilities. I think what we've seen so far has been some increase in accessibility and fixed price options for consumers which haven't existed before. And I think one of the things which in doing the research for this paper really struck me was the almost universality now of lawyer search platforms, lawyer mediation platforms. Of So often it's not about really doing anything very radical initially, but about connecting people. Mm-hmm. In terms of, of more sophisticated use of technology for consumers using, for example, various forms of, of, of artificial intelligence, that hasn't really happened yet or is happening in 
tiny, tiny little pockets. I think actually there's some really interesting consumer stuff happening in France and Germany. In particular, in you, you know, I get the strong impression that some of those sort of websites that exist that are there to help people either deal with a problem that, you know, maybe they, they don't start out thinking, I need a lawyer, but they start out thinking, I have this issue with a, I've got a consumer complaint, or I've got sure. a, I'm, I've got a problem with this airline, I want to get my flight ticket reimbursed. Right. There are there are now offerings on the internet where people can get those issues much more easily solved for themselves than they could have done in the past. And the numbers taking those up in jurisdictions like France and Germany and to the some, ex- some extent in the US as well is is really impressive, mm-hmm. sufficiently so to actually get traditional lawyers and uh, their regulators a little bit concerned. In terms of England and Wales, I think that to some extent we haven't seen as much as I would have expected us to see, given that actually you know, we probably have more more tech development sure. here. We're more advanced in certain ways. We're certainly more advanced in terms of the take-up amongst law firms. But somehow or other, and I don't know exactly why that is, it hasn't really taken off in the consumer market as much. Maybe it's because we have got certain areas of law which have become quite commoditized and are therefore not as expensive as perhaps relatively speaking they would be in France or Germany like sure. for example conveyancing or you know get a divorce or, or, right. or whatever but i think from from the consumer's point of view what is interesting is the potential rather than what's actually happened yet just going back to what you talked about initially here where we've seen these services like get your flight re- flight reimbursed um, these kind of things do you think it's perhaps more likely that we'll get legal services being offered not as legal services but as particular solutions to particular issues that people have in that way consumer problems um, or perhaps housing issues that have wider implication you know wider um, not just have legal problems but have aspects which are not just legal but other things do you think it's perhaps more likely that we'll see the innovation coming through that channel than through saying lawyers saying hey we're going to offer you legal services as a as a sort of um, as an offering i think that would be the really exciting breakthrough actually for consumer legal services because one of the things that it's very easy for those in the sector to do is simply think about well we'll take what we do now and mm-hmm. we'll sort of whack it on the internet or we'll automate this bit of process and without actually thinking from the, the you know the design point of view and i think that's where some of the concepts underlying technology like user centered design and and user experience those kind of things when they they really start to take off in the consumer legal market will make a huge difference because one of the problems around, as as the Legal Services Board's research over the years has shown, is a lot of people don't know they've got a legal problem, yeah. or they don't classify it as a legal problem. They know they've got an issue, but they don't know that it's actually something 
that a lawyer could help them with or another legal service provider, even if they do know that, they maybe feel, I don't know where to find one or I don't know how to select one of the myriad of different possibilities out there. There's nothing there that tells me whether this person's better than that person. So how do I choose them? I think that that sort of ability to reach people through more kind of functional websites or functional apps that that lead people to help them solve particular problems or issues in the context of maybe some aspect of their life. So it might be in the context of you know a divorce or the context of a family breakdown, the context of a house move. All of those kind of things are going to make legal services much more accessible to people. And I think it's interesting that there are more websites, online services springing up in and around California, for example, that do exactly this in that they focus on stages of people's lives. The problem that they face somewhere like California is the boundary between, you know, the unauthorized practice of law and the fact, you know, the handoff to the lawyer bit is quite clunky. But I think what, you know, that's where there is real potential, I think, to see the market develop in such a way that you can, you know, consumers can access services which don't take the legal bit in isolation from other needs they might have because their problems might involve a bit of financial services, it might involve a bit of therapy, it might involve some medical help, it might Mm -hmm. involve some, you know, so the more that legal services are permitted to operate in a multidisciplinary environment and in a multifunctional environment, and law is simply something that's embedded, that it's almost invisible to people that this is the bound, and now I'm, and now I'm getting a lawyer, the more accessible people will find it and the more legal services will be used and hopefully the more prevention there will then be of problems. It's in England Wales for example it's not like we don't have some kinds of entrepreneurial law firms and if you think about certain sectors obviously yeah. things like personal injury yeah. you know you yeah. have plenty of ads from this, yeah. this kind of thing but that, presumably there are other areas where it doesn't work as well or it, law firms maybe don't go out looking for customers in the way that perhaps other businesses do. I think I think one of the problems for the consumer legal market is if you want to solve the problem of how how to deliver legal services to people in a way that isn't too expensive, then inevitably you have to look at some form of commoditization. Yeah. And I think that so far here, most of the commoditization that's happened has happened in areas that are relatively relatively easy to to commoditize, like yeah. you know. Your, your property worlds or to some extent areas of family but that then is limiting the the areas which are accessible to people and it requires you know and that's great for either consumers or say small medium-sized businesses that may want to access legal advice which basically says okay you're setting up a firm you've got an employment dispute, you've got a some other kind of issue, contracts, mm-hmm. whatever, and things come in nice little neat packages sure. that are suit the law firm or suit the legal service provider because yeah. they can achieve a certain sort of standardisation and a certain degree of commoditization. The challenge for the next stage of technology is how artificial intelligence can take us to the next level where we are actually providing a less a more bespoke 
service. Right. So it's less about, well, we can commoditize this, but it's about how technology can provide people with a bespoke service, but do it at a sufficiently low cost that it keeps the cost to them low. Okay, well, f- following on from, from that point about how regulation could perhaps hinder progress, are you seeing that regulators are, are positive about the benefits of technology or are they sort of wary about detriment and wary about where things are going to go? Well, I think I would start by qualifying the word regulators because I think if we're looking around the world, we first have to acknowledge that there are a wide spectrum of different approaches to lawyer regulation. Sure. There are there are many countries in which you have a traditional sort of bar association, bar council, something like that, where they're basically so self-regulation or some kind of largely sort of self-regulated professional body which controls all sorts of, you know, both the regulatory and the representative functions. So those kind of regulators tend to be a little bit torn because on the one hand, you know, they are very concerned about what they perceive as their existing members. So they're more concerned about competition coming in and undermining what they see as the the sort of gold standard of legal service mm-hmm. provision, which is, you know, quite often, you know, a traditional thing of people getting their day in court. Then you you have the sort of more court-based regulators, which covers a lot of Latin America as well as the US. And there, I think the attitudes of regulators are being driven, particularly in the US, by, by the judiciary, who are very focused on consumer issues, very focused on litigants in person. I think their initial, the first sort of wave of, of interest that they're manifesting so far is very much around the courts and the court processes and getting those improved. It will be a little time before that then feeds into those that are actually doing lawyer discipline and regulation, because I think that's a little bit of a a leap. And I think there is also not a lot of resource in, in those kind of regulators. Then we come to the sort of the other, another category, which is the model that we have here, which you can also find to some extent in Australia, particularly in New South Wales, Victoria, where you, where you can find in you know variant of it in Singapore, variant of it in Ireland, where you've got more of an independent regulator sure. who's been set up with regulatory objectives. Mm-hmm. And although the models sort of differ slightly, you'll find that in those kind of jurisdictions, there is a much broader appreciation of the legal services market as it were and the fact that lawyers are providers Mm -hmm. there may be room for other providers and then there are consumers and so there is more emphasis on consumers in in those sort of regulatory models I think than in many others Mm -hmm. where you will not hear the word consumer in in many jurisdictions in the context of legal services. You mentioned there about the fact that in a lot of the, the jurisdictions where you have the the self-regulation kind of model, the bar association type model, you, there's a tendency to want to have the sort of gold standard in people's day in court. Is that different, do you think, in, say, the model we have here in England and Wales, that, peop- that, the, that the regulators don't look at it in quite that way? Are they looking at it more, really more from that consumer folk approach? That's uh, very much the, you know, the model that, w- that we have here has been 
in the last decade to encourage regulators to to think about the you know the ultimate goals of of regulation as being not not only uh, well primarily about improving the the functioning of the market to such an extent that you actually are providing better outcomes and better access to legal services for for everybody as well as good standards you know the two are not the two are not in a in an adversarial relationship mm. it may be that if you try and set standards you have to think about the standards and the requirements that you're imposing and balance those out against the outcome that you're expecting but i i think in in many jurisdictions the regulatory model has increasingly move towards this this idea that somehow the more requirements that are imposed on legal service providers so more CLE more CPD more insurance longer periods of qualification higher requirements for qualification that somehow rather that will all manifest itself in benefits to consumers so it might do just create higher priced lawyers yeah basically it just creates higher priced lawyers and on that I mean when it's probably not the greatest analogy in the world, but when you look at, say, something like supermarkets, mm-hmm. you have a you have a range of supermarkets and then they, they are there to hit different price points. You know, so you have your in the you know, in the UK you have your weight rows, you have your Aldi weight rows at one end, Aldi at the other. But we don't really see that in legal services, do we? So we so in most markets, if there's a group of consumers that are not buying a service, someone usually creates a version of that service at a price point that those people can afford. Uh, but do you think that we can have a situation here where regulation creates a, 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 situa- a scenario where lawyers simply can't go to those places, can't create services that people can afford, and you end up with a bit of a perfect being the enemy of the good in terms of consumers being able to, to, to get affordable legal services? I mean, I think there's, an, there's a strong element of that. I think one of the other things which is uh, makes life difficult uh, for um for, for those that want to provide services to a, a consumer market is, is both having enough information about that consumer market right. and having a real understanding of how it works. But secondly, also, I think it's fair to say that consumers themselves are also quite conservative mm-hmm. when it comes to legal problems. And that's where this idea of how do you move people away from thinking you know this is a legal problem yeah you know to actually i've got a problem law is just part of it but you know when people so people will often put off any kind of thinking about you know preparing themselves for legal issues like you know powers of attorney and and a whole load of things you know you ought to really be thinking about when you have an elderly parent who's you know going to die at some stage you know unfortunately there's a lot of you know just as there's financial planning there's legal planning but most people you know law is a distress purchase and until we change that concept of of how people think about legal services and approach it i think it's going to be it's going to be difficult on the demand side as well as the supply side okay we've talked a bit about how um there's obviously an issue with legal services being too expensive people not being always able to access them to what extent do you think regulators are looking at technology and thinking we could achieve a policy aim by getting a technology out there? And how successful do you think they have been in doing that? Or maybe, and are there any dangers with them trying to steer technology, technological development for what 
the right from the, from the regulator perspective, perhaps, as opposed to maybe what the, yeah. the market might generate or consumers might generate. Um, well, first of all, I'd say I think it's it's very early days mm. actually for quite a lot of regulators. And if we go back to the the typology of regulators that yeah. I was talking about earlier. I think that there are marked differences in the way in which they have reacted and how they've reacted so far. So I think that, first of all, I would say that those that are in the independent regulation category, i.e. they're not sort of owned by government and they're not owned by the profession, but right. they're, they're steering a, a, a course that is set more objectively, that those regulators of which, you know, we count the English and Welsh mm -hmm. regulators as well as the Australians, are beginning to focus on this really just in the last year or so. Though, you know, the Federation of Law Societies in Canada, the Victoria Legal Services Commissioner, you know, there are reflections going on, but they're still early days. They're gathering right. information, they're looking around at what the options are there I wouldn't say that I've seen I, I wouldn't say that I've been able to to see solutions actually applied mm -hmm. probably around the world the solicitors regulation authority here is yeah. more in the forefront than anyone in terms of its engagement but I don't think anyone has yet done a kind of across the board look real sort of heart searching about technology and and how it impacts might impact on codes of conduct or, or rules more generally so you know there has been a tendency to sort of kind of say well if we just go more sort of principles based and more more sort of mm -hmm. large you know sort Looking of vague, vague you know yeah. then basically that will work for everyone because it's so it's sort of general principles right. sort of you know and we can come back to whether that's that helps or not but then there is another clear strand amongst regulators when i say the regulators they tend to be the profession regulate professional regulators and mm -hmm. the kind of bar led right regulators the bar-led regulators are much more likely, this is not a universal observation, but are much more likely to be negative about technology sure. initially. So mm -hmm. many of them have their first instinctive reaction was, this is another challenge like the accountants coming into the legal sector, like the perfidious British starting their terrible alternative business structures. Yes. Like the the idea that um, of lawyers, law firms being listed on stock exchange, which many people cannot understand, or it just does not compute for them. In those sort of jurisdictions, the initial reaction was very negative. More recently, there's been a sort of oh, this is now permanent. This is now mm -hmm. this is not something which is just going to go away. It's something which is actually beginning to pose us challenges in which actually there are there is a demand from within the profession yep. to respond so we better do something about it so there you've tended to see what i would almost call an appropriation of technology okay. so there have been a few places where a number of places so france and, and belgium as well where the the bars themselves have started the lawyer platform so right. they've they've said great okay we will be the place where people can find legal services. We won't allow the market to provide it. No. So in terms of those kind of jurisdictions where they're they're sort of trying to reach an accommodation, what the risk for them is that what they're doing is that they're trying to sort of suck technology into the existing regulatory structure. Right. 
and that is going to limit the the scope of what it's going to do yeah, yeah. because actually the really exciting areas where technology could transform the legal sector is by how it will transform the existing model yeah. not by and, making and, it fit and do something model. different to what yeah. the current model does yeah okay great thanks so, so just briefly obviously legal services isn't the only professional service area that's using technology is there anything that legal services regulators can learn from the experience of, say, the medical profession and its regulators or the financial services profession? Uh, yes, I think there is there is a lot in both areas for different reasons. I think with, with fintech, fintech is more established than legal tech. It's it's a much, much bigger market. It attracts much more investment. There are, the regulators are cooperating much more intensively around the world on fintech and how to respond to it there is also evidence that within fintech there is a greater tendency amongst the financial services regulators to set up their user panels their you know consultative arrangements with new providers new entrants well not even just that but i mean even just consulting on more widely understanding how the rules impact them understanding how how their world works and where the where the obstacles are to helping those services develop which is is something that perhaps is is not evident in the legal sectors as as we mentioned you know Mm -hmm. slightly less friendly approach countries to new entrants i think the the other things which uh, uh, you mentioned the sandbox approach for example i mean that's something which has since since it was first trialed here uh, by the financial conduct authority is now you know there are examples of that springing mm-hmm. up and different different manifestations of of sandboxes but many of them have the same sort of underlying goal which is to to create a safe space mm-hmm. to to explore how you can introduce innovative services without undermining protections for, mm-hmm. for consumers. And there are sort of various approaches as to, to how, how those are being done. Um, I think that the other thing which I found quite striking is, particularly in the fintech world, the extent to which um, some of the regulators have taken the sandbox concept as not just being let's create a safe space you come along and propose what you want to do and we'll see if we can work it out yeah they've taken the approach that actually we're going to attract we're going to select people into our sandbox Mm -hmm. so come along if you've got a proposition which fits these criteria because actually what we're trying to do is encourage more services in areas which we think are currently underserved and i think that is a like access to finance so so again what we've been talking a little bit about a little bit earlier is actually sort of trying to implement some policy aims yes I think that's a really important thing that both, I would say, fintech and to some extent in the health Mm -hmm. tech area, both of those are examples where there are regulatory approaches which have been much more proactive. I think there's, and there are exceptions, but as a general rule, the the regulatory response from the legal sector has been much more passive and much more reactive. Do you think that the difference in attitude in, say, certainly in in financial services has been just because they're used to technology. They're more used to dealing with computers. They're more used to dealing with markets that work on a, a electronic, have worked on an electronic basis for a long time. Is, is it something that it's just the idea of 
that sort of thing is just much more embedded in their in their industry, perhaps? Um, possibly, possibly. I mean, that could also be said of of the other area, which which you know I think mm. is worth the legal services sector being aware of, which is on the the medical devices yeah. front. And I think that's where you can see the existing regimes around the regulation of medical devices making it an awful lot easier for regulators then yes. to segue into now we're regulating medical apps we're we're regulating software as a medical device mm-hmm. that ability to make that conceptual leap was probably facilitated by the fact that they were doing something remarkably similar before whereas you think about legal services at the core in a lot of jurisdictions mm. Lawyers are doing what they've been doing since the 15th century yes. or, or probably before that. You know, the Romans, you know, yeah. probably the Roman legal system has more in common with where we Modern are today system, yeah. than, uh, than perhaps what will come in the next century. Sure. So do you, do you think there's going to be a challenge, therefore, in legal, for legal services regulators to get that technological expertise on board and be able to handle regulation of technology and understand it? Are they going to have to beef up, let's use that phrase, their expertise to in a way that financial regulators have, in, in a way that um, medical regulators have? And is there going to be a, is there is there almost a size challenge? Is it possible to be too small? Or are there other issues, for example, with financial regulation? Obviously, we have the FCA here in the UK. Mm-hmm. When you look at the US, is it because you have, say, a federal level regulator, perhaps for financial regulation, mm-hmm. in a way that you maybe don't have for legal mm-hmm. regulation? Is, is there a sort of structural challenge here? I think size is important in um, in this area because I think you know it's no it's no surprise that to a large extent the the regulator that's probably furthest down the road anywhere in the world is the SRA on right. this because it has the size mm-hmm. and consequently that also means it's got a big data set yeah not necessarily a very good data set mm-hmm. but you know it's got a big data set. So I think that, and, and one of the things that I found interesting in terms of talking to a lot of regulators in preparation for, for this paper was, was actually, in many cases, people saying to me, we're thinking about it, or we're not ready yet, or we've, mm-hmm. begun, we've begun a reflection, or we just don't know. And I think that there is a real lack of a lack of expertise and skills in terms of understanding technology and understanding what it means, mm-hmm. what it might mean, what it doesn't mean. Yes. All of those things in regulators, uh, in, the, in the legal sector regulators. So I think there is a real opportunity for more sharing, more collaboration around the world, not just, uh, you know, but here would be good. Because I think there are, even if there are regulators doing different things, you know, what we're talking about is establishing perhaps some sort of common understanding of some training, some terminology, some shared resource, because it's, you know, it's not like there are a whole load of people out there Mm -hmm. who understand technology and understand regulation who are available you know I mean somehow or other we're going to have to grow it's a niche it's a niche skill set it's a very niche skill set we're going to need to grow that group of people because they don't exist right now and what lessons do you think legal services and regulated legal services regulators here in England and Wales can learn from the experience of other jurisdictions I think there are three things 
that I would highlight. The first is in terms of a lesson from legal regulators elsewhere in the world, and that's to avoid being constrained by existing regulations, rules, regulations, codes of conduct, etc. And not just thinking, we'll apply what we've got, Mm -hmm. we'll apply the framework we've got. I think there is a real need for some completely blue sky, blank sheet of paper thinking. The second is that I think there are real opportunities real prospects around uh, using the example of the Conference of Chief Justices in the US, which I was very struck by the fact that they don't know much, you know, they're judges, they don't know Mm -hmm. very much about technology. But what they decided was that technology could be the key to something they've been looking for for a very long time, which is how to solve the access to justice problem. So they more or less set a challenge across the board to every state Mm -hmm. in the US, every chief justice, to find ways in which technology could help with access to justice. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the galvanising approach of some sort of policy direction like that in terms of getting people going and focusing on things. Because as long as it's simply just an, an underlying issue that's out there that you know you ought to do more about and you know you ought to find out more about mm-hmm. it never kind of bubbles up to the top of the of the list of things right. because let's face it most regulators are short of resources are short of staff and have a lot of other more pressing issues around sure. than something that might be going to transform the industry over decades the last thing i would say is a lesson to be learned from uh, say the fintech world in particular which is about increasing the knowledge base by learning from the industry itself. So those that are at the cutting edge of developments, many of them are very reluctant to come to regulators and have discussions with them. So being more proactive in going out and searching and more friendly. This is technologists. This is technologists. Technology developers, yeah. But also looking across into other sectors to, to, to see what's being done elsewhere and what analogies might be drawn in terms of, of regulatory approaches. And... I'm particularly enthused by the possibilities of looking at the health tech, medical devices, regulation side of things. And and lastly, also learning from the fintech world in terms of things like data standards and providing the infrastructure that will help technologists then build businesses. So we we don't have much data, we don't have much data standardization, we don't have we don't have a lot of those those kind of automation facilitating approaches that they have got now in in the financial services sector. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Alison. It's been extremely informative. And just to say that our next podcast will be with Professor Roger Brown, sort of KCL, and we'll be covering how professional services regulators in other sectors in England and Wales are addressing the issues of technology. Thanks for listening.